0: All right, Frank. Thank you. I'm Danny and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, It's good to be with you. It's good to be in an A meeting, you know. uh, And uh, I've had a good day, you know. um, Every day is a good day, really, you know, when you're not drinking. And, you know, know, I'm just grateful for what I have today. You know, I was always kind of thinking if I had something else, I'd be more grateful. and I suppose that's what he has given me. I'm just grateful for my home and my health. My missus is in good form, and you know we have a happy home. You know there's no anger or fear in it, and um, you know things are good. You know, um, you know, and you know when I started drinking, really, it was um, when I was a young lad. I was very sordak. You know, I was very thin. I had I had worms in my stomach and health problems and uh, my uncle used to take me to the local town, McCroom, for, uh, to go to confession every two weeks. And he would take me to the pub after confession and he'd give me a few bottles of Guinness. He said that the Guinness was good for the worms of the stomach and that's how I kind of started drinking really. And he used to give me smokes of the pipe. He used to smoke a pipe and you know when you were young that about 7 years of age or 8 years of age you know what i mean you you, you just can't have a, a smoke in the pipe and Guinness and, and i used to kind of collapse on the floor you know i used to kind of fall down against the the, the wall you know and uh, i remember there was this old timer in the pub who used to always say you know that he said if you got to be drinking that Guinness he said you better get used to lying on the floor you know and uh, i didn't really know what he meant but uh, I'll always remember him saying that, you know, and that's how I kind of started drinking, really. You know, um, You know, I, I started kind of, when I was about 15, then I was 14, I had a job in the local village. And, uh, and uh, I used to give my mother so much money every week. And, uh, you know, by Sunday, I'd be asking for it back again, you know. Uh, and uh, I had a fierce draw towards the drink. You know what I mean? And uh, I was 15 years of age. I came to the UK. I'm still here. And, um, you know, it was all kind of aggro from the word go. I remember I bought my first car. I was only 15 years of age and I paid 700 pounds for it. And, you know, 700 pounds was a lot of money then, 47 years ago, you know. And, uh, you know, for me it was anyway. And I bought it over Monday and Wednesday night I wrote it off. You know, um, there was this old guy in, near me in, in Ireland. He, he, his funeral was on. fellow called Sean O'Reilly. He was a great musician, and he used to—I um, used to be pushing his car. You know what I mean? He, he nobody had a battery in his car, and you know, he, you know, I think he was probably one of us. You know, he—he he, he died when he was forty. You know what I mean? But he was a gifted musician and all that stuff. You know, but. Um, yeah, you know, and uh, I came to the UK and, and uh, I always had problems. I was staying with my brother and his wife, you know, and, uh, and there was problems all the ways, you know, whether it was wetting the bed or whether it was just, you know, depression and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I remember I bought my first three-piece suit, uh, you know, my, my sister-in-law was always encouraging me to buy stuff, you know. Um, at that time, I was getting seven seven pounds a week. We was works 12 uh 12 hour shifts seven days a week. I'd get £11 a day, you know, and, um, you know, my sister and I she used to sing in a band, and uh, and we would go out with her, like, a lot of the weekends, but sometimes my brother would say, you know, we won't bother going out tonight, you know, to the good John Wayne film, on. And I used to think to myself, fuck that John Wayne, you know what I mean? You know, I didn't want to look at John Wayne in the film. I wanted to go out for a drink. You know, I was only about 15 at the time, you know. And sometimes the brother would say, you know, why don't you go out to the top of the road and have a couple of drinks, maybe the last half an hour. And I would slog down as few pints as fast as I can, you know what I mean? I didn't realize it then that uh, what was missing, that I needed this chemical, you know, for to... uh, start to fix something inside me you know i didn't know what was wrong with me then you know uh, i seemed kind of more or less normal on the outside you know i was good at my job you know what i mean and uh, and i took great pride in my job you know all the time and uh, but there was something in it when um, when alcohol had come into it i just had no strength you know i had no determination it took away all ambition I had as well. I had great ambition for music and that and singing when I was younger, and it took everything away. You know, and my old godfather, he would say, You know, he said, You wasted your life. He said, You, you got a great ear for music and you just threw it away, you know. But, you know, when I took the first drink, I realized that alcohol got my attention, you know, and, uh, and everything else then kind of lost its power. You know, and uh, even whatever any family would say or anything, everyone lost its power. And, you know, by the time I was 21 years of age, I was a chronic alcoholic. Before that, I was in a relationship with a woman. And uh, she got pregnant. And um, when I heard she was pregnant, I wanted to be someplace else. You know, I was very very slow and being kind of responsible and and all this stuff you know what I mean and I just couldn't I was like a child I might have been 21 years of age but I was like a child but the fucking thing about being an alcoholic is I had to pretend that I was normal and I pretended I was happy about this pregnancy and I had to drink more for to kind of cope with pretending again you know and um Everyone is congratulating us on all this stuff. And a lot of my family, they had their own companies in Reading and Berkshire. That's where I lived that time when I came over. um, You know, uh, then after about six weeks, she had a miscarriage. She lost the child. And uh, I had to pretend I was sorry then about something that, uh, you know, that uh, I felt kind of relief with. And that kind of stuff kind of fucks your head up, really, because you. You're trying to pretend you're normal, but the thing is, the feelings inside don't correspond at all. You know, you know. Well, there's something missing. There's something kind of not right. So that's really kind of sums up my emotional well-being. You know what I mean? I had that ism. You know what I mean? And you know, uh, <clears throat> but I just, I just thought, you know, that you know, when you be, you kind of get old, you kind of mature, and you kind of get out of this stuff, and you kind of grow up or whatever. You know. A lot of the people I drank within, they kind of, as they got older, they kind of grew out of the drinking. And they kind of had relationships and marriages and kids and all this stuff. And I kind of grew into it more. I kind of got more involved in it more. And anyone that was in a relationship with me, they were abandoned, you know, emotionally and financially and everywhere, really. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, abusive verbally then. But as my life went on further, I was abusive, you know, uh, with people I live with and things like that. That time I kind of, you know, I was sort of, you know, think, you know, and I'd fuck up, like, you know, that means that, you know, I probably deserved it or whatever. You know, I was never, I hate confrontation. I seen a lot of confrontation when I was growing up. There was an awful lot of violence when I was in my home when I was growing up. So I think I would always steered away from confrontation and stuff like that. And I think what stopped me really uh, to have any kind of violent stuff either as well is that I had a fight with a brother in my one time, an older brother. And I realized I had no stop button when I started fighting. you know. And I frightened the shit out of him and I frightened myself more. So I always had a kind of a trip switch in alcohol. That if I kind of, in my head, if if the red mist come up, I know I was always on a promise for a drink. I didn't have to kind of act out on it, you know. But, um, you know, that was my life, you know. And I, I moved to London in 81 or something in 1980. And, um, you know, I, I gave a, the first few months in there, you know what I mean. I, I was very kind of gullible in a lot of ways, you know. And I met this guy inside in pub and he said that he was living in a squat. And I didn't really know what a squat was. But he was very partially spoken and he said, you acquire a premises, he said. And he said, you put a a lock on the door, he said, and you become a landlord, he said, of a property. So, and he said, you don't have to pay any rent. So that's what I do. I became a property developer without any property. I would open up these premises and I had about five or six of them going and I would rent them out. You know, houses that would be empty, there wouldn't be no one living in for a long time. Sometimes there'd be... Council places that you'd maybe get a year or two out of. Sometimes they were private, and I would rent them out to people, probably like myself. You know, that didn't have a lot, and um, and I was working full time. Um, I had a great job. Um, you know, that time I was doing underpinning. You know, for this company, and uh, the average wage that time for the person like working in the building that time was about thirty-five pounds a day. And, um, and I was getting £120 a day. I was on price work. My seven, this Dunigall man I met, we worked together for a long time. He was a great worker. I love work. I really loved work when I was young. I love the achievement thing in it. And I love to be good at it, you know. And um, I remember one time there was these two miners that came down from Scotland, they were working the mines. And my seven, this Gall had said, We'll put these. We'll put these guys under pressure. And we started the morning at seven o'clock and we never finished until ten past six in the evening. We walked all through the day. We didn't stop at all. And the two miners said, these two guys are working with us. They're insane. We want to be moved, you know, so they're jacked up. You know, we would like that. You know, we were just mad. You know what I mean? And we had plenty of money, you know. uh, Money really was my self-worth, I think. I often feel that money, it used to calm my nerves, you know, because, you know, even I was young and I could kind of take care of the hangovers then and I wouldn't take as much notice. of I was really kind of, um, when I was 21, it stopped working for me, really, the alcohol. You know, the hangovers got kind of, I was getting awful kind of DTs in the morning, you know, and I would get in a tube in London for to go to work. Maybe about five o'clock. Sometimes I'd go to the early house, and I'd have to come off the tube because the shaking and the gawks and the panic attacks, you know. And uh, so, you know, um, my life was going downhill. You know, and my my both my parents died that year as well when I was twenty-one, and um, I suppose that was the last contact with Ireland as well. You know, there was always some place if your life kind of went a mess, you could go back to, you know, And uh, but when they died, you know, it was like that final cut with Ireland, really. And uh, I didn't go back for a long time after that. Um, you know, and, you know, the, 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 what had happened then with me was that I started going to the early house every morning. I would go to the early house in the morning at about five o'clock. And, um, you know, I met someone I was living with him and, and uh, and they would have Labour see me, you know. I would get up in the morning about four o'clock. I'd be in an awful state, probably after wetting the bed, you know. Uh, and I, I'd, I'd give her some money or something like that. I always had money at that time, you know what I mean? And, uh, and I, I used to sell and buy cars as well, you know, the weekend. And uh, I remember I was selling this car to this fella. He came to buy this car. And he said, um, he said, I'm buying this car for my daughter. She's disabled. I want to give her a little kind of run out the country, maybe in the summertime. And there was something wrong with this car, but I wouldn't tell him. And he walked around the car, and he said, yeah, he said, I'll, I'll give you that money for it, you know what I mean? But he, he just, as he was coming around me, coming around towards me, he opened the back door of the car. And when he opened the back door of the car, it fell down the road. There was no hinges in the door, you know. And I'll always remember it. He said to me, He said, you, sir, he said, will never get a heart attack, because he said, you haven't got any heart. And I really took no notice. That was an insult. I was thinking, geez, I said, that's a good one. I never heard that one before, you know. You know, I was like that. I I kind of could, I never was able to bring the emotion, you know, the empathy of another person and, and the hurt you cause to another person. I was really barren, you know, and, um. So that was the last car I sold, you know what I mean? And um, uh, eventually, you know what I mean? Uh, There was someone I used to drink with, this woman I used to drink with. You know, uh, she brought me to my first meeting. By then, you know, a lot of the financial stuff was gone. You know, I was living in a flat with someone and uh, you know, at that time I would drink the rent money. I would do anything. I would pawn her jewelry. I would do anything for money. All the kind of big money was gone then, you know what I mean? And I was like, even that I was 31 years of age, I felt about 70 or 80. You know, my mind was tormented. And um, so my wife now, but we we were just living together that time, her and her friend took me to my first meeting. And um, there was this guy, he was a young actor, you know, uh, at the meeting. And, uh, you know, I judged him. When I seen him, when I had him talking, because he was English, you know, I was so hate. I was full of hate from other people, and I was full of everything, you know. But the one thing he said was, he said, no matter how good I done my job, he said I had no value in me, and I could, you know what? Even that I was very ill and very ill for a long time in AA, I could identify with that. When I was doing my job, that was called me spirit level. Because everything had to be spot on. If the foreman said to me, that's good enough. If he'd go away to tea or something, he go away and go back over it again. And I just want to do it spot on. So they was calling me spirit level. I was a bit, bit of a perfectionist, I suppose. I wanted praise and whatever people thought of me probably was more important. And, you know, and all this stuff, you know. and um, But eventually I made it into a, you know, an, uh, um. I, uh, <clears throat> I was in and out of air then for about three years I would get a few months and I would drink again you know and um, and then I went into a treatment center when I went in there I found out I had a brain tumor and uh, you know the surgeon said to me he said you lose one eye he said you lose the hearing in one side and you'll probably end up like a stroke victim where the tumor is, you know. And, um, but, you know, I didn't lose the eye, but I did lose the hearing in one side. And one side of me was a lot weaker. You know, I had to do a lot of physios. I had to stand in pillows for the first year or that way after the operation, you know. But I did go back to work after a few weeks, even though I was supposed to have physio and all this stuff. I always remember this sergeant, he said to me when I was leaving, he said, um, he said, do you drink alcohol? Well, I said, I have a few, I said, the weekend, you know, and by then I was like, you know, up to that operation, I was drinking like kind of all the time. And um, he said, you know, all I can say to you is, he said, don't you ever drink more than whatever a half a pint was that I made an overhead unit, you call that. Because he said, if you will, he said, you'll get a hemorrhage in the brain. And he said, even if you're in this hospital, he said, we won't be able to save you. Because he said, the surgery you've had, he said, for the next two to three years, he said, he said, we'll keep check checking and we'll scan you. He said, because this is very delicate stuff. And um, I came out of the hospital and I was getting physio and I was standing in these pillows for to try and walk, right? Because I was like someone who was drunk when I was walking. And within six weeks, I was drinking again. I was working for this company, I started another new company and uh, they were giving me some fantastic money, you know. Uh, you have a kind of a reputation in, in my work, if you, if you get a good reference and if you're kind of well doing your job, you kind of get a good job and, and I got a good job with this company and after about three weeks I said I wanted more money and he said you're getting more money, he said, then people is with us for 20 years. And I got a resentment. I didn't know really what a resentment was that time. I was in AA, but I didn't really know nothing. And I picked up a drink. And I knew when I was picking up the drink that I could be my last drink. That if I got a hemorrhage in the brain, I'd be gone, you know. But, uh, you know, then the madness of this illness is just unbelievable. You know, and after uh, that first year, I got into more trouble with the police. That first year that I stopped drinking, that I didn't all my life. I was in a day. One day I was in a job and I was driving a machine that time. And um, this lorry driver came in and he said, "You're overloading my lorry too much." And I was very touchy that same day. There was no program, there was no nothing. And uh, he said, "You're a bit of a nutter." He said, "You know," and I, I said, "I'll show you if I'm a nutter not." And I started roading the lorry. And I started pounding down on top of it. And, and I put it up around the cab with the lorry and everything. And and he wouldn't offer his head out again. He came out. He came out. And when I did, I hit him with the machine, a 20-ton machine. And, uh, and when, he, when he fell down, I was bringing the bucket down. I was going to cut him in half. Because when you get the red mist and you're insane and you have no air, you have no nothing, you're just not drinking. And as I was just going to cut him with the bucket in two halves, I said to myself, you know, I said, my woman has gone through enough shit. I said, you know, I better um, not do this. And that's what saved him. It wasn't AA, or it wasn't the consequences. It was, I suppose, I didn't want to put my woman through anymore. So that was the time I got someone to help me then, you know. And uh, I got a lot of people to help me along the way. Everyone I met in A has helped me, you know. But there was this, there was this, uh, Old scotch by that helped me more than anything. He was great with newcomers. You know, when you talk to him for an hour, your head is that to melt inside it. He would just give you so much information. It is like your brain would be coming out of your ears. You know what I mean? You'd be melting, man, you know. He was brilliant, but uh, you know, uh, I had an awful problem with my memory. You know, I would go to a meeting and I'd get the wrong bus home. I was like having blackouts. Even that I, um, even that I, I, I wasn't drinking for months, you know, and I was get scanned every three months first, and then every six months, and the last time they scanned me after six months, I said to the doctor, I said, "There's something wrong with my mind." I said, "My memory is very bad." And uh, he said, "You know," he said, Mr. O'Reardon, he said, he said, "I see by your file here," he said, "You're a chronic alcoholic." And he said, the tumour we took out, he said, was a big stuff, he said. And we don't know if it we move, but he said, as far as I know, he said, you're in the early stages of wet brain. Because, he said, and you've damaged yourself so much from years of drinking. But I said, I'm only 31. I'm only 31 years of age. He said, you're in the early stages. So um, I went over to South London, and there was just full over there at Galway Joe. And, uh, you know, he he was a great friend, and um, I said to Galway Joe, I said the doctor told me that, you know, at the early stages of wet brain, you know what I mean, and uh, I said it don't look too good, Joe. He said, "Take no notice of so that man." He said, he said everyone that come into A, he said, have a bit of wet brain, but he said it'll dry out inside an A. He said that's for is about drying out the brain. He said, and he said you'll be all right. So, you know, uh, I met some fantastic people in AA. You know what I mean, and. Uh, you know, I got the Scotch guy to help me then, and he was great altogether, you know, and, um, you know, I'll always remember the first chair i done. I was doing, it. Uh, I asked me to do a chair out in Park Royal in the psychiatric hospital, and, um, you know, uh, I was about two hours early for the chair, and uh, I was sitting in the foyer, you know, at that time at the hospital, you could smoke in there at that time, and I was in there smoking with all the patients, you know what I mean, and next thing, the matron came out and the security guard, they said, come on now, you must all go in for your medicine, you know, and, uh, and the safety, uh, or the, the safety guard was looking at me, you know, he said, uh, he said, what's wrong with you? He said, why aren't you coming in? And I said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not one of these people at all. I said, I'm an A member. I said, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not a patient here at all. I said, I don't belong here. He said, I hear that every day. He said, every five minutes. He said, I hear that in this hospital. He said, I don't belong here. He said, come on in. He said, or I'll get my mate. He said, to come out for you. So then my mate, Joe, walked in the door. This fellow that was helping me. And he said to Joe, he said, do you know this man here? He says, he's a member of A. He said, I've never seen that man before in my whole lifetime. He said, I've never seen him. And I said, fuck it, Joe. <laughs> but anyway, he was just having a bit of laugh, you know. And uh you know, I just, my progress in A has been very slow. Very slow. I was very damaged, you know, when I came in here. I come from a dark place. You know what I mean? And uh, all I ever wanted was that if this one thing to drink was taken away, I would give in my right arm for to do that. Because then the, the torture that was through my mind was horrendous. The only comfort I ever had for the first few years I was in A, I was very ill. Was a thought of suicide. When I would get a thought of suicide, it was a real comfort thought, because I was very tormented, you know. And uh, but I kept coming back. I didn't take a drink a day at a time, you know. And I knew well that there was something in AA, you know, that was starting to change in my mind. I knew the people in here that were alcoholics, and whatever I'd say, you know, it was all right, you know. And and you know, sometimes when you're and in English City, and you're the only Irish person at the meeting, I would be paranoid about it. I would say, if I will share, no, they'd be all oh, look at me like I have two heads, and all the stuff. I had a lot of that stuff. I had a lot of racist stuff against other people. A lot of anger. I always thought if I could get my anger down to controlled anger, it'd be all right, you know. And there was a lot of, lot of heartache at home. You know what I mean? Uh, I wasn't violent, but you know, I was I was ignorant, you know, and disruptive. And then, uh, you know, uh, how my missus put up, but I don't know. She was an Al-Anon before I went away, you know, so that did help her. And that's what happened, you know, when I started doing service in a, you know what I mean? I started doing a job, as secretary and all this old stuff, you know, and making the tea. And, and the first tea commitment I had, there was this woman, she stole my umbrella. And I was thinking, you know, they're the biggest show of bastards of all times, these fucking A people. You know, she stole mine, Berlin. And I realized that she wasn't an A member at all. She was just kind of, you know, had other problems, but uh, she was always welcome there, you know. And I got to know her uh, over the years. And, uh, you know, um, a lot of great stuff has happened to me, you know, because something awful, powerful happened to me. This wanting to drink was taken away. You know, and I couldn't do that. When I had one drink of alcohol, I had no choice but to have the second one. And something happened to me in AA, I took away this wanting to drink. Isn't that the most powerful thing of all times? You know, and uh, and you know the people that were in there. Like I was talking to a mate my today. He was in AA when I came in that time, and he was a good block sober that time. You know what I mean? And uh, I think it was his kindness and gentleness. And kind of truth and honesty that encouraged me to stay here. And the time came when I didn't want to take my own life anymore. And I got a bit of hope and a, you know. And uh I've got a fantastic life, you know. Got a fantastic life. A lot has happened. It's very hard to, to mention a lot of stuff, but a lot of stuff has happened. Where I would be talking to another alcoholic. You know, I, I, I'm a great believer in original A. One alcoholic talking to another. And I would be talking to another alcoholic. And it was like my illness, I would soften my illness. I would be have a resentment or anger or whatever. And I talk it through with my mate. And you know, whatever had happened, it would soften it. And uh I wish I would be all right, you know what I mean? And um, you know, I started going down my knees praying, and I, I got up very quick because there was an awful lot of anger in me, you know, you know, and uh, I just, the hair should stand on top of my head when I would try and pray, you know what I mean? And uh, But I got over a lot of stuff over a day, you know what I mean? And All I can say, like today, is that there is no wrong way of doing this. If there was, I wouldn't be here today, you know, because i have done everything wrong. I wouldn't be here. And I can say as well that the day I walked through Alcoholics Anonymous, whatever I thought I'd done wrong or I did do wrong, was forgiven because you man that helped me, he explained about the first step. He said, Danny, he said, if the tide was coming in, he said, could you walk down there and stop the tide? And I says, no, Joe. Well, he said, that's the same power. He said, this illness have over you. He said, it's the same power, the same power. He said, you couldn't stop the tide. And he said, whatever happened to you or whatever you done wrong, he said, was forgiven the day you came through a, Because, you know, he said, he said, you wouldn't get a gift like this, he said, if there was something held against you. So all the, the stuff in my life, you know, and, and the, like I right shame I had and guilt I had, you know, it was explained to me that all the steps and all these meetings and all these traditions and all this kindness I got from other people was for me to forgive me. How can you have something against it? man was very ill? He used to explain to me, like I, I had a fierce I grew up with my old man. He he had a nervous breakdown when I was young and I kind of never forgave him, and he was very violent and all this stuff. And I couldn't forgive him. And he said to me one day, this I had a new fellow to help me when I was about 10 years of sober. And he said, you know, he said, you wouldn't go into a psychiatric hospital and start arguing with a patient because he'd done something wrong, would you? I said, No, that'd be wrong. Well, he said you have grievance against someone. He said that was very unwell, and uh, and he said you were unwell as well. So I had to look back over my father's life. When he was fourteen, he was sent out as a slave to the other part of Ireland to work on a big farm, and he was out of his depth, you know. And I think it, I think it broke his spirit. I think it destroyed him, you know. So I had to look back in a lot of things for to forgive people. I think some people they say they can forgive in their mind. But I couldn't do that. I had to go from a different place, you know what I mean? And uh, and I got in touch with something in here that I, I didn't have before, and that was that gut feeling. I always find that that gut feeling, you know when it's right and you know when it's wrong. But I was never able to develop it until I came into AA. I never had that presence of that gut feeling that I know this is truth and honesty and the sincere that you know and this is the right thing to do I always went from my head from my thinking and of course I was told in a that the thinking is the illness I think I've gone on an awful long time I don't know but anyway um, it's just great to be here I don't know if I've really spoken about recovery or what I've spoken about I remember I was talking to this man from Dingle one time, Kerryman, you know, and, I, 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 um, and we were talking about things that we, like from the past. And I was telling him about how I was to stale apples out of Noni Connell's orchard when I was a young lad. And he said to me, he said, the is the end of your life, he said, you're not going to be asked about the apples you stole out of Noni Connell's orchard, He said, you're going to be asked, maybe, he said, did you help someone else to stay in here? I believe that's the whole purpose of me being sober, is to try and help someone else and not to make a big deal of the steps and all this other stuff. Just make no big deal of it, just get through my day, do the best I can, and try and help someone else if I can. And try to get into a a big command about it, you know. I don't know what I've said, it might help someone, but anyway, I'll leave it at that, Frank. Thanks very much for listening to me, everyone. Thank you.